Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at the works of Philip K. Dick in chronological order of publication. Currently, we are reading through Philip K. Dick's early novel, published in 1956, called The Man Who Japed. This is part three of this series, so you may want to go back and listen to the previous two episodes in which I go through the earlier chapters of of this novel. This novel, it's very rich thematically, as, as was almost all of Dick's novels. It deals with questions of surveillance. It deals with mental illness. It talks about the frontier and the role of the frontier in our societies. It talks about the way an authoritarian government based on moral conservatism may function. It talks about bureaucracy um, and many, many other things. Sexuality is an issue, too, in, in this novel. So it's, it's one of the richer ones. I, I don't know why it doesn't get a little more love. I think sometimes people who read Philip Dick and get into novels such as Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep or Scanner Darkly or the Valis trilogy tend to neglect some of the earlier works. And I realize there are fans of the stories out there and those stories were written earlier, but sometimes these novels just get kind of tossed away as not really up to his later quality, right? Or just disregarded as early works. I think The Man Who Japed, it has a lot of the faults that you might be able to pin on a young writer, one writing for, who doesn't really find his audience yet. That was one problem I think he was struggling with at this time. And so there's kind of sometimes a little tantalizing sexuality that's thrown in there, not really analyzed. It's really the more there maybe for a, a younger audience, a younger male audience. And yeah, he outgrows some of those aspects in his later works, but I think there's a lot to talk about in these early works. And this is one of a couple that I think is particularly rich, such as along with Solar Lottery and Dr. Futurity. There are a couple other early works that maybe deservedly are cast aside, but I don't think The Man Who Shaped is, is one of them. So thank you so much for listening to my series on, on this novel. So let me first just go through what I talked about in the previous two episodes. So if you are just joining us, you're up to speed. So in the first few chapters of The Man Who Japed, we meet a man named Alan Purcell who works really making propaganda uh, for a moralist, conservative, authoritarian society. Uh, with their major ideology of the state is the global world government, but their major ideology is called MORAC or moral reclamation. And their main idea is that they're are restoring a moral order after a war you know, that came out of decadence. Um, and if um, anyways, this world emerged in the aftermath of a nuclear conflict. And after the war, a, South, a white South African Protestant took over. His name is General Stryker. Purcell, at, just at work one day, has one of his works criticized by his superiors in the government. And he's kind of a, a, a contractor who he's, he has a private agency that sells these kind of basically propaganda packets to the government. One of his packets is criticized, and he blames it on a, a, a colleague, Luddy, who he fires. Not really a colleague, a longtime employee. 
He's then offered a job in the formal government bureaucracy as essentially the head of the moral branch of government telemedia. And so the, the, the government agency that's most responsible for implementing moral reclamation is the, is the media, as you might expect. And that's basically the job he's given. We learn that this is an expanding society with a frontier, although many on the frontier are deemed morally and socially or even mentally outcast. They're called, what are they called? Nooses, basically mental defectives of sorts. Keeping the frontier in line is a major preoccupation of the government. And in the backdrop of all of this are a strange journey that Purcell is, seems to be going on that he's not fully aware of, or he has blocked out periods of time, or he's doing things and he doesn't know why. Later, we learn that this gen statue of General, General Stryker, who's kind of in the city center, has been seriously vandalized. The extent of this vandalism is kept from the public population at large. Purcell visits the site of the vandalism and collects various theories and details about the vandalism. He meets a strange woman who gives him a card offering him to stay at a health resort. Her name is Gretchen Malparto. Later, he calls the number to make an appointment with the health resort, and he talks to Dr. Malparto, Gretchen's brother. Purcell, at some point in the story, also confesses he did, not, he, he did the vandalism. He doesn't really understand why, though, but he knows he did it. During a public confessional where various members of the community are exposed for moral lapses due to the surveillance robots called juveniles, Purcell is called out for a strange behavior such as drinking late. One member of the community tries to defend him, basically because he's a moral leader. But this is one of the more interesting aspects of the novel about the nature of their surveillance state. Yes, it's a surveillance society. And yes, people who commit moral lapses are publicly punished in these, these displays. But there's something almost democratic about the, the, these actions of calling people out for their moral failings. But also, anyone who's accused has to be basically caught on video doing it. Uh, doing the act. So there's a high standard of evidence here. Now that's made a little bit easier by the fact that you have these juveniles running everywhere, basically keeping very good records. But yes, there's a lot of moral regulation in people's lives, but you know, everyone's kind of part of it through these public proclamations. And then at the same time, just, you, it's not a witch hunt. You can't just say, oh, I think so-and-so is sleep, you know, cheating on his wife or something. There has to be kind of photo evidence of that. And I talk a little bit about this in the previous episode, especially on, uh, you know, in, what's, in what context would we accept a certain level of, of surveillance in exchange for security or if it's fair or if, you know, if, if it can help, you know, make sure that we get the right person, right? W won't we accept surveillance? This is a question I ask. Wouldn't we accept increased surveillance if it meant that people who are in jail are only ones who commit crimes, right? It might mean more criminals get caught, but it might also mean that less innocents get caught up in the mix. Is that, a, is that a balance we're willing to embrace as a society? Well, with that introduction out of the way, let's go right into the next part of The Man Who Japed. So Alan Purcell goes and makes an appointment to meet with this Dr. Malparto in these health resorts. Now, the health resorts are interesting. They, they have bases on earth and they have a special relationship within the government they're actually allowed to function even though they're a bit outside of morec because to say someone has a, a psychological problem seems to cast doubt on moral blame to a certain degree right like if you say alcoholism is a disease you really can't blame people for taking a drink but they're still allowed partially because Strainer's wife was fond, had to find this for Jungian analysis. But these people also seem to run these off-world resorts. There's whole planets that essentially function as adjuncts of the health resorts where people go for recuperation or if they just can't fit into Morek 
moral reclamation to society, they, they have to leave and they can't be part of it anymore. So they go off to these colonies and we're going to be introduced to what these places are like shortly. So Alan Purcell goes and meets this Dr. Malparto. He gives him the false name of Mr. Coates. Purcell insists on going by his false name, despite Malparto knowing exactly who he is, which is kind of interesting. This, this false name is going to be important as the plot rolls on. Marparto despairs that Morak does not allow him to treat patients properly anymore. Mostly, he says, they're just cast out of the system. And then, of course, being cast out, you lose your lease. Essentially, you lose your home, you lose your job. And where can you go except the offer of colonies? So he, he wishes there was more of a government acceptance of the process, I guess, of psychoanalysis. Purcell admits that his main problems are professional. He doesn't know if he should take the promotion, for instance, but Marpalto assures Purcell that he can be secure in his office. There's no juveniles allowed. This was part of the deal worked out with the government. So there is kind of a, a confidentiality in there. So given the, the, the demands of evidence in the society, meaning something has to be on tape, basically whatever you say will be, um, you know, basically you're free to say what you want in the doctor's office. Now, so Mr. Coates, Purcell, then comes out with admitting that he damaged the statue, but claims he wasn't in the right mind when he did it and doesn't really know why. That's, it's not so much that, you know, was he insane when he did it, but he doesn't really understand why he even would do this. He talks about how he met his wife on the frontier and how he is fond of the agricultural frontiers. This is an issue that's been popped into the story from time to time. In fact, the initial packet that was rejected showed uh, a tree this was a propaganda poster or something. It showed a tree dying in the off-world colonies. And his point in doing this was to say, you got to have Morak in the colonies if you want to be strong. Right? You can't move away from Morak. You have to be part of the same tree, right? Without Morak, the trees on the off-world colonies will die. It was rejected because of the government's effort to promote agriculture in these places. And so it's kind of, they didn't quite think it was clear enough in its meaning. So they rejected it. But this idea of the off-world agricultural colonies is in the backdrop of this novel. And here's what he says about it. Purcell, he says, In a way, I liked it. It was like a frontier, the frontier. I remember a whitewashed board farmhouse. That was her family's, her father's. He and I used to argue. He edited a small-town newspaper all night, arguing and drinking coffee. End quote. This, this is something he liked. This is a fond memory for him. It's, it's kind of a very American image to me. This People sitting around having a coffee and a rule setting while arguing politics or whatever. We're given some background though, also on Morak's economic system from the discussion of, of how treatments are paid for. The doctor says, an examination will be made of your income. You'll be charged according to your ability to pay. And then works, then as Dick explains to us, this was characteristic of Morak training, the old Protestant frugality. Nothing must be wasted. A hard bargain must always be driven. The Dutch Reformed Church, alive even in this troubled heretic, the power of that iron revolution that had crumbled the age of waste, put an end to sin and corruption, and with it leisure of peace in mind, the ability to simply sit down and take things easy. How must it have been, he wondered, in the days when idleness was permitted? The golden age in a sense, but a curious mixture too. The odd fusion of liberty of the Renaissance plus the strictures of the Reformation. Both had been there, the two elements struggling in each individual, and at last the final victory of the Dutch hellfire preachers. What, what I'm getting, what I'm thinking about here is what is the relationship between the Protestant work ethic and a society that has technological post-scarcity, which this society clearly has. We have many examples of automated homes, automated transportation, 
automated factories. In fact, auto facts are commonly used in this novel. So when you have you have uh, the conflict between the work ethic and technological post scarcity, the f- material foundation of a world that doesn't need to work, and an ethic, a value that says everyone must work, and idleness is something to be cast out on. I think this is a really interesting thing that Dick doesn't nearly explore enough in this novel, but there's a lot of ground here for um, thought, I think, especially because that's sort of the situation we're running into, at least in societies like the United States, and I, I think also Taiwan, where I live, where the technology to abolish work is there, but no one really thinks that's a good thing. People fear that. It's like, what would I do if I didn't have work to do? So that's that's the question I want to kind of throw out there. Malparto hears his story, then instantly clears his schedule and gets ready to dig deeper into his patient mind. So using some device, the doctor is able to get at Purcell's memory. And it's, it seems to be a technological solution. They're able to put him in some machine and he's able to remember things that he has forgotten. It's a mighty strange night we enter into. This is the night where these strange events happen, the night he went to Hokkaido. So he's bored. Purcell goes out and watches the lights, and he thinks of how much he wishes there were neon lights, but then he sees that it's the lights from an auto fact delivering goods. He talks to a boy who desires to go to the frontier, and there's a bit of a conversation here again about the frontier. So not only we have Purcell admitting some desire to go to the frontier, and then we have a small boy who also seems to be interested in the frontier. The boy says, it's from Bellatrix 7, tongue skin products. They've been unloading light globes all day. Beatrix, only a slave system, none of them habitable. Nuts to Beatrix, a companion spoke up. Alan was puzzled. Why? Because you can't live there. Well, what do you care? The boy regarded him with contempt. Because we're going, one of them croaked finally. Where? Contempt turned to disgust. The group of boys edged away from him. Out where it's open, where something's going on. The redhead boy told him, On Sirius 9, they grow walnuts, almost like here. You can't taste the difference. And the whole planet of walnut trees. And on Sirius 8, they grow oranges. Only the oranges died. And then Alan says, after a few more lines, That's away from the center. Be realistic. It's taking your family's decades to live to lease this close. And then Alan comes to the conclusion, Morak wasn't natural. As a way of life, he had learned. They had and that was a fact and the unhappiness of the boys was there to remind him end quote so this is just him realizing that that this desire this this centralization of society this desire to get closer to the center the desire to be in the city and with it being the heart of this moral reclamation society is something people are always going to resist and it's almost like a centrifugal force that's pushing people out outside of the center all the time so he realizes Morak is a forced way of life and can't really be sustained, even though that's his main job. That's why you need a propaganda engine. If people wanted to gravitate towards the center, you wouldn't need that propaganda forcing them to. And it, it just we see there's so much tension in this empire, too. Plus, they want to develop the off-world colonies, but they still want people's hearts to be in the center. Well, he goes to buy a 3.2 beer. I don't quite know what this is supposed to be. Maybe it's 3.2% alcohol. And they lower the alcohol content because moral reclamation. Um, but he remembers once how he ordered a beer and got a fifth of scotch instead, which I think is illegal. So he keeps buying 3.2 beer, hoping for this again. So he's essentially trying to buy, hoping to buy a whiskey, which is um, something you shouldn't be doing. So that's all Mel Pacho extracts from this session. So this this was a gap in a mind, and it was simply the boys in this auto fact station. And it all seems rather banal to Purcell, although I think we can look at this as a very significant memory. 
Then another memory is extracted, and this is about Hokkaido. So Purcell arrives at Hokkaido. He steps out into this ashy, devastated terrain. Oh, Hokkaido is one of the like ground zero of this war, totally destroyed, unreclaimed, unre unreclaimed. And he meets a man named Tom Gates, and he's there with someone else named Sugarman. And these are people who sort of live in Hokkaido, and they make their living from digging and recycling garbage. And they often find like illegal on books that aren't published anymore, especially pornographic or otherwise banned books and sell them for a lot of money. And there's a long discussion of how valuable these books are. They try to sell him some things and he refuses them all. Finally, they pulled a pornographic novel, which he reads a bit into, and he's going to remember some passages from this novel. He's also shown a pulp crime novel. Again, these are we get the suggestion that all these novels are essentially banned in in Morak society. Then they show him a copy of Ulysses, James Joyce's Ulysses. Ulysses is expensive. It's worth thousands of dollars. It, until I think it was Naked Lunch was the state decision. That was in the state Supreme Court of Massachusetts, where the state Supreme Court said that you can't ban books for, you know, that are that are clear that are not intended to be pornographic just because you don't like the content of them. And then that spread to other states. So over the tours of the 60s, it's part of the sexual revolution, of course. Censorship was ended at the at like the level of law. You still had it with, you know, like a school could still ban a book or something. But, we, you know, books aren't really banned anymore. And even this around this time, you have the replacement of the of kind of the regulation of film with the rating system. Right. Instead of having people say this film can go or not, instead, it'll just be viewed and, and rated. That'll happen at that, around that time, too, in the 60s and early 70s. Now, Ulysses was was not really banned in the United States, as I understand it. There was kind of a de facto publisher's or distributor's decision not to bring it in. And then in 1933, one of the publishers did a test case. Where they brought it before the courts, and the courts decided that Ulysses, although racy a little bit from time to time that shouldn't be prohibited mostly i think the argument given was that it's literature so this is saying that that straight up literature couldn't really be banned there there'd be questions about books from time to time after that and that's where we get the naked lunch case from you know is does this qualify as literature or is this just kind of pornography but ulysses didn't really have formal wasn't formally banned in the united states but a lot of other books were at least at the state level. That's really a work of literature. It just has a few racy parts. Um, you know, there are some, I can understand, I mean, the reason, you understand why it may have been censored when it was, but at the same time, it's such a hard book to read and most people who read it aren't reading it to be titillated. So it's, it's kind of an interesting case. But anyway, at this point, Ulysses is, so many, many of the books that are, that these men dig for are banned by Morak society. And it has a very expansive censorship program that's described at this point in the story. They see these books as commerce. Purcell states, very interesting, that they should be preserved as historical artifacts, which is very an unmorak thing to do. Remember, this guy is basically going to be the head of the moral policy-making board of the government, telemedia, right? The head of delivering moral lessons. And he has all these non-Morak ideas floating around. And one of these is that these books should be preserved as historical artifacts, at least. 
Morak wants them to be destroyed as degenerate. So all sides see these books as valuable or dangerous in some way. But unable to come to a deal on a book, they drink this bottle of sherry, these three glasses of sherry. And this is what gets him in trouble as, you know, coming home drunk. And we've already talked about that in the previous chapters. So this is why he was drunk when he returned home from Hokkaido. It was after these events that he returns home and vandalizes the statue of the society's revolutionary leader. Now, he's not so drunk. I mean, he can't blame this vandalism on three, bottle, three, three glasses of sherry. Now, after hearing this, Malparto is a bit frustrated that nothing more interesting comes up. And he suggests that Purcell be psi-tested. And he we asks what the point of the jape was. And this is why he wants to do psi-testing. Because he asks, why do the jape at all? Why destroy that statue? It's not going to affect society because the, not, the true nature of the vandalism will not be known to anyone. Was, you know, instantly it was covered up. And yeah, the news was it was like damaged a little bit. Like, I think... They said it was just like some paint spilled on it and they need to fix that up. But in reality, the head was cut off and the body was reformed to make it look like he was kicking, punting his own head. So that was a radical change and very offensive to Morak. But that's not known. So it's like, why do it? And he says, well, maybe it keeps the police and newspapers busy for a while. Now, Marpalto thinks something else is going on here. And he thinks that maybe Purcell is a precog. And that he knows there's a deeper significance to the jape than is really apparent. Or maybe not a conscious precog, but on some level he has precognition. So he knows that doing this jape is going to have some positive benefit down the road. And maybe that's why he did it. And so he's really, he thinks, Malpato basically thinks he found a, someone with a psi power. And that's kind of a good find. So he, he wants to study him more. Well, Purcell goes to work sometime after his time with Malparto. And he gets some bad news. The man he fired, Fred Lundy, Luddy, has went to work for a competitor with all of their ideas. They are all required to take an inventory of what has been stolen. And this is, it's useless though, that basically their entire, all their ideas have been stolen and will be sent to a competing firm. I think it's Blake something. And even if they sue for these back, by the time the lawsuits are worked out, the packets will be obsolete. And, the, you know, it's such a, you know, on-demand type of industry, you know, these old packets aren't going to matter in a year or two. So he basically, this is going to push him to make the decision on the promotion. Basically, his own firm is has no future, at least in the short term, No, doesn't really know what he's going to do. He makes his wife, and he makes kind of a cruel jape, actually, which is another, he's got this kind of, but his japes are kind of cruel, he, and she actually says that the joke was cruel. I think he calls basically pretending to be a policeman, saying, you know, your husband's dead or something. But finally, he says, let's go out to the museum. And that, that, that night, they meet the kids of the family who are Ned and Pat. I don't think we ever really met them before. They're not really raised in the family very much. It seems they're sort of got their own things they do. Maybe Morak raises them. They're going together to an art museum or, or just a museum, I guess, because Purcell wants to talk to his wife, a public museum. But Purcell wants to talk to his wife about various things, basically to make a decision on this job, this promotion. And he suggests maybe leaving Morak society altogether, going to the frontier. And he suggests Beetlejuice 4. She says, well, maybe we can take a trip, which is kind of a nice way of saying no. Now, the museum exhibits we have here are all propaganda. They all proclaim the downsides of living in earlier times. And so everything comes down to Morak. And so we got a house, how they lived. And it shows basically a, a middle-class 
suburban house, but it's presented in a very bad way. They drank in opulence, the stocks of canned food, the great freezer and stove, the sink and washer, the dryer, the car that seemed to be made of diamonds and emeralds. Over the exhibit, the sign winked out. An ugly cloud of smoke rolled in, obscuring the house. Its lights dimmed, turned dull, red, and dried up. The exhibit trembled, and then the spectators, the rumble came, the last tremor of subterranean wind. When the smoke departed, the house was gone. All that remained of the exhibit was an expanse of broken bones. A few steel supports jutted. The bricks and sections of stucco lay strewn everywhere. In the ruins of the cellar, the surviving mannequins huddled down in their pitiful possessions. A tank of decontaminated water, a dog they were stewing, a radio and medicines. Only three mannequins had survived, and they were haggard and ill. Their clothing was in shrouds, and their skins were seared with radiation burns. Over the hemisphere of the exhibit, the sign concluded, And died. It's a really nice display, it seems. Of course, it's, it's basically saying that pre-war society was decadent and caused the war. Now, Purcell comes back to the idea of leaving to his wife. He figures there's really nothing left on him for Earth. And, but with this idea thrown out the window, Purcell declares that he has no choice but to really take the job. And he says, at the very least, this will let me get revenge on the agency that stole Fred Luddy. Because he'd be in like a superior position. He'd be able to drive them to bankruptcy. He seems to rather enjoy the havoc he can cause in this position. Again, a very unmoric uh, position, a, a non-moral um, point of view. He sees Mrs. Frost and tells him that he'll take the job. Now that night, Purcell has a very, very strange dream. It's only two pages in the book. It's, it's one whole chapter covering two pages. He finds, a, he finds a building in some sort of strange jungle setting. He saws through the wood until he reaches the stone of this building. And then he takes some of the stone, like in fact a big stone, and he lays it down on... And he takes it, he lays down himself on some plant pulp, but then he gets up and he's, he's taking the stone and you got this kind of Sisyphus idea of him dealing with this massive stone. He then takes it and he rolls it down a hill and it bumps smashes into the getabout, the car. They call it the getabout. He goes down to the car, he puts the stone in the car and drives home, and he drags this heavy stone into the house. Was this a dream or not? Well, for that, you'll need to wait and, and listen to part four of my review of The Man Who Japed. Now, I think the most interesting part of this section of the novel is the psychotherapy and the recall procedure that he undergoes. However, we also learn a bit more about how Morak operates, especially the, the importance of the present work ethic in Morak society. And we see how it really starts to conflict with uh, the technological advances the society is making. Purcell has to make a major decision, and he does, but he does it for nefarious purposes. He doesn't do it because he really believes in the Morak position anymore. In fact, we've seen plenty of evidence that he has doubts about the entire project. We also have the introduction of the possibility that he's a precog and why that might be important. So this brings us to about the halfway point of the novel. It's, it's a very short one, by the way. Um, but anyways, uh, I'm going to leave now. I'll be back very shortly with uh, part four of The Man Who Japed. But thank you so much for listening to my thoughts on the works of Philip K. Dick. If you have comments on your own, please leave them below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. And then I will be back with part four. And possess my tired thoughts once That living dies, that living dies, that living